Part two, chapter twenty three of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. Chapter twenty three Private Lambert's Shot. Just at this time, another wounded soldier received his billet at the Ashlands. He was a tall, athletic young fellow, and report said a dauntless soldier. His name was Hardy a native of Norfolk, Virginia, and a member of the Richmond Howitzers. He was as fine a raconteur as I ever listened to, and one of his stories so interested us all that I jotted it down as it fell from his lips. "'Talking of shots,' said Hardy, meditatively stroking his moustache, "'puts me in mind of the greatest artillery discharge made during the war.' "'Is it true?' queried Colonel Ashland or is it a story like Will Edelin is hatching in his head now? "'What is it, Will?' inquired one of Colonel Ashland's daughters. "'What is what?' answered the little infantryman. "'That story that father said you were hatching in your head.' "'Oh,' he answered, "'I was only thinking of Captain Flynn's shot. But go on, Hardy, and tell us your story.' "'No,' said the artilleryman. "'Peace before war.' After you have finished your yarn, I'll begin mine. Out with it, Will, said Colonel Ashland. I know it's worth hearing. Well, when Hardy there spoke of a great shot, I was reminded of a pretty tall one that did considerable damage down on the eastern shore of Maryland. It happened long before I was born, but the story has been handed down from father to son. There was an old Irishman named Captain Flynn who owned a small schooner which plied along the Potomac River and its estuaries, buying fowls, fruits, and garden truck from the country people and selling them in the Baltimore markets. It happened that the captain, a week before Christmas, dropped anchor off Cutler's Creek, and there came an unexpected freeze, and for four days he was held hard and fast. All his meat gave out, so he travelled over the ice to the home of one of his best customers, a spinster named Miss Tilda Jenks, who made her living by raising poultry. Miss Tilly was cited among her neighbours as being the sharpest and the shrewdest bargainer in the whole country round. Indeed, some of the old hands said that she could even beat a preacher in a horse trade. When Captain Flynn went to purchase a dozen fowls, the ancient spinster promptly doubled her price. This made the old captain so mad that he went back to his sloop, swearing he would starve before he would pay it. Then ensued a struggle between his stomach and his pride, which resulted in his going back the next day and paying the spinster her price. As he saw the great number of fowls in the enclosure, he said, Miss Tilly, how much will you charge me to let me shoot in the thick of them, and let me have all I kill? The woman studied for a while, and then answered, Captain, if you let me load your gun, you can have all you kill for one dollar. Be dad, and it's a bargain, and here's your dollar answered the Irishman, and now I'll go for me gun. He hurried back to his boat, got out an ancient bell-mouthed blunderbuss that had belonged to his grandfather, put in a handful of powder, rammed in a bunch of tow. Next, a double handful of shot was dropped down the barrel and held tight with another bunch of tow. Then Captain Flynn sawed off about four fingers of the ramrod, picked the flint, called his crew, which consisted of an antiquated darky, and proceeded inland. Miss Tilly first carefully measured the gun with the ramrod. Then, despite the protest of the captain, she loaded the gun with only a thimbleful of powder and one of shot. A bargain is a bargain, captain, 
she said tauntingly, and here's your gun. Now you can have all you kill. Captain Flynn asked for an ear of corn. This he shelled along for about a hundred yards from the woodpile. Then laying behind a log, he signaled to Miss Tilly that he was ready. The gate was opened, and the fowls of all sizes, sexes, and condition came running, flying and fluttering out, and there was a confused mass of heads, wings, and feathers mixed up as far as the eye could reach. The captain sighted along the line and uttered a prayer. The darky got behind a tree and clapped his hands over his ears. The spinster stood with her horn spectacles on her forehead, serene and confident. Then the captain, having finished his orisons, pulled the trigger. There was a thundering report that reverberated clean to the Virginia shore and back. Then the smoke covered everything. When it lifted, there was the captain, sitting up, rubbing his shoulder. Miss Tilly had her arms raised to heaven, crying, I'm ruined and undone. The darky was dancing a jig. The spoils were counted, sixteen chickens, twelve guinea keats, five hen turkeys, one gobbler, two geese, two pigeons, four ducks, and the old lady's pet pig. "'Well, well,' said Colonel Ashland, "'you know I am strictly temperate, but Mary shall make you a julep for that story. Now go on, Mr. Hardy, with your narrative.' "'Well, my story is very much like Will Edelin's. It shows the power of a rain-shot, and it is the solemn truth, although it sounds incredible. I saw the shot with my own eyes, for I was number four of the gun, and know the incident has been the theme of almost every campfire in the army.' You all know when Grant made his sudden onset on Lee at Spotsylvania, so as to split his army in two. He used every artifice to conceal his movements, and then relied for success upon his heavy attacks and sudden charges. He was successful, for he broke through our lines like a tempest, shivering to pieces everything in his path, and capturing General Edward Johnson and his entire division. The line was re-established with great loss. In consequence of this, extraordinary efforts were made to prevent any more surprises, and the troops were cautioned to be on the alert, and to be ready on the instant to repel any attack the wily, determined enemy might make. Of course, you all know the Richmond howitzers by reputation. There is not a soldier in the Army of Northern Virginia who has not heard them spoken of again and again in the bivouac. Probably no finer batteries ever served in the world. Every battle was but another record of their triumph. During the series of savage assaults of Grant at Spotsylvania, the position of the first company of howitzers was on the left of the center. The whole army had thrown up hasty breastworks protecting their front. The position which the howitzers occupied was intended for a battery breastwork. There were embrasures for the guns, with the earth shoveled high on each side. Connecting, there were the rifle pits of the infantry on the right. Just here came in a peculiarity of construction which every one noticed. It could not have been through design, but on this singularity hangs the whole action. This line of works was built directly across a large field which was bounded in front under a quarter of a mile away by a thick covert. The howitzers were but a section and had but two guns, which were on the left and adjoining the infantry, and the two guns of a North Carolina battery were immediately upon the left. Now bear in mind the breastworks for the artillery were in length about twenty yards, the guns being about fifteen feet apart, a distance which gave us ample room to work them. Our breastworks were not immediately joined to the infantry entrenchments, but were fully twelve feet in front.
thus the rifle pits extended through the entire length of the field to an impassable swamp on the right which was commanded by two batteries of artillery on a hill beyond the field was nearly level along the line except where it dipped gently in the center close to the rifle pits it was a warm sultry may morning and absolute silence reigned along the whole front the artillerymen wearied by their hard work of the past week lay among their guns almost to a man sound asleep leaving the task of keeping watch to the infantry all were not asleep though for another soldier besides myself sat on top of the breastworks we were smoking our pipes and looking with a good deal of curiosity at the texans and the eighth georgia for it was the famous hood's brigade which held this part of the line the command had joined in a score of conflicts and its battle flags bearing the names of engagements almost hid the stars and bars that glorious brigade whose coming to the front in a double quick had often brought hope to many a sorely pressed regiment neither officers nor men expected any trouble that morning the brigade was stretched on the ground in an aspect of contented rest the soldiers with that knowledge which the veterans have of making themselves comfortable had by means of their guns and bayonets formed a rough shelter on the top of which were stretched their blankets and oilcloths even the sentries had grown tired of their pacing beat and with the sang-froid which prevails in our army were sitting down with their muskets across their laps half asleep all at once a singular sound was borne upon the air a curious muffled noise like the tread of many feet the lookout heard it got up yawned stretched himself and gave a careless look in the direction from which it came one glance was sufficient with a blood-curdling yell he fired his musket instantly every man jumped to his feet the embryo tents disappeared the line formed in a second the artillerymen sprang to their guns cool collected ready for the fray there in front was a sight to cause a warrior's blood to thrill a gallant glorious sight with all the panoply of warfare issuing from the dark woods in splendid array were three lines of battle with an interval of about seventy-five yards between them they were coming in a double quick and were now fully halfway across the meadow evidently intending to carry the works by a coup de main the lines of blue advanced solidly quietly and portentously in their silence awful in their power the loud tones of our officers came quick and decisive each soldier in the infantry grasped his rifle the gunner in the battery sighted his piece the foe seeing that they were discovered broke into a hurrah and increased their speed in an instant the four guns bellowed dense blue-black smoke hiding everything for a moment from view the discharge made wide gaps in the mass but did not check them in the slightest those were veteran troops fighting under the eye of the splendid hancock and were doing well the work that was cut out for them their line was not extended nor did it overlap the artillery the sole attack seemed to be squarely against the infantry and they did not seem to care about the artillery at all again the guns double-shotted poured death and destruction into their ranks they staggered the long line vibrated but stiffened and advanced always advanced but when that ominous deadly musketry volley was heard then was seen the result they wavered turned and fled leaving many of their number lying on the field the second line came on a run the officers well in front waving their swords and leading straight on to the works the guns opened their storm of iron the texans hurled the murderous lead and the foes fell in scores but still these grim warriors of the array of the potomac breasted the tempest and kept up their resistless advance 
They neared the works and then for the first time pulled triggers at a few paces. A line of fire ran down their line, followed by the purple smoke, then forward they dashed until they reached the rifle pits. Their right did not extend far enough to encircle or overlap the guns. They were within a few feet of them as they halted for a second. They were now safe from the artillery, which turned its attention to the third line of battle, now about a hundred yards away and just pulling for the breastworks. It was a moment of furious excitement, and the day seemed lost to the rebels. The Texans had just given ground, and their line had been forced back some paces in the rear of the works, when they seemed determined to make a stand, but it would have been in vain. The third line, once up, would rush like a tidal wave and overwhelm the already staggering brigade before reinforcements could come. The Yankees were strung out all along the ground at the foot of the works, calling upon their comrades to follow. The end seemed near. One rush and all would have been over. Their triumphant cheer rose, heralding victory. The battery was served as it could only be worked by men who knew that moments were precious. How those dogs of war barked in one successive roar, sending grape and canister into the mass of men. The second line reached the works, and the guns were now rapidly served on the advancing third line of battle. The artillery had work to perform in its front. The artillerymen's bloodshot eyes gazed out of the clouds of dim smoke at the last line of blue, against whom they were hurling their iron bolts. All were looking, all save one, who in that time of awful peril and appalling commotion kept his head clear, his senses cool, his nerves steady. Amid all those scenes of dire disaster, screams of the wounded, yells of combatants, the hurly-burly of the death-dealing missiles hurling through space, there, Private Lambert, of the Richmond Howitzers, turned and gazed around, taking in the whole situation. He was attached to the right-hand gun. I had just rammed the charge home, the other had primed the piece, and the gunner had hastily sighted at the line of blue, which was not seventy yards distance. The cannon was charged to the muzzle. All right, cried the sergeant. The detail scattered to right and left. The lanyard was just about to be pulled when up spoke Private Lambert. Hold up, men. His military intuition had caught a great idea. The arm nerved to pull the string relaxed. He sprang to the trail of the gun, and calling upon me to help him up, he seized the handspike and slung it around in a semicircle until the muzzle projected over the right angle so as to rake the breastwork. The mouth of the gun was only a few feet from the right of the enemy's line, which stood pouring its volley into the Texans. The man who held the lanyard, instantly divining Lambert's wishes, gave the line a jerk. The charge exploded with a thundering report, and the cannon, full from the belly to the throat, raked the whole line. In a few moments the smoke which poured forth hid the scene, but it soon lifted, and there were the ranks motionless, dazed, turned into statues. Even the Yankee soldiers, who held their muskets leveled, with fingers upon the triggers, seemed to have forgotten to fire, and turned their terror-stricken countenances, and looked in the direction from whence came that stunning report, that fatal shot. It was as mortal as that dart hurled at Phaeton. Then the whole force, demoralized for the time, hesitated. The delay was fatal. The yells of the rebel reserves were heard as they hurried to the front, and put new life into the defenders. The Texans, hearing this, sent forth a burst of fire, and charged over the breastwork into the foe. Broken and shattered by that terrible flanking discharge, and feeling that the assault was a failure, they ran into and stampeded the third line of supports, and all retreated to the friendly shelter of the woods. It was a glorious victory, plucked from out of the very jaws of defeat. 
The artillerymen were at first utterly dumbfounded at the magic power of one shot, and the inexplicable rout of the foe at the very moment when the cheer of triumph was lingering upon their lips. An examination of the ground along the breastworks revealed the mystery. Heavens, what a shot! Private Lambert, with that quickness of perception which makes the military genius of the highest kind, whether found in the general or the rank and file, perceived that it would be more fatal to enfilade the line than to fire across the field at the supports. He had the nerve, at that moment of supreme danger, to carry out the plan. When he whirled the gun sharply around, the muzzle covered a long line of some four hundred yards, which, owing to the breastwork of the battery being some twelve feet in advance of the rifle pits, had the effect of raking the entire line, just as boys climb the telegraph poles by nailing footpieces, so as to fire along the wire when the swallows sit close together. But that common shot, the effect was awful. Such a deadly discharge was never fired before in America. Eleven lay killed. Those close to the gun were so mangled as to be past recognition of anything like humanity. Twenty-seven wounded, nearly all fatally, most of the poor fellows dying soon after being carried into the field hospital. The Texans crowded up, and in their hardy soldier fashion congratulated the howitzers in extravagant terms, sincere and honest, however, and the artillerymen felt that a compliment from them, as far as fighting was concerned, was the highest praise they could ever receive. General Pendleton, chief of artillery, visited the field that evening, and said that it could not be equaled in the annals of war. Yet Private Lambert is Private Lambert still. He was honored by having his name read at dress parade, but that was all. Napoleon would have made him colonel of artillery on the spot. He had shown that he had the born intuition of a soldier, without which all military training is lost. Yet Private Lambert will remain Private Lambert. It must have been this incident that Major Robert Stiles, a member of the Howitzers, speaks of in his book, Four Years Under Marsh Robert. The troops supporting the two Napoleon guns of the Howitzers were, as I remember, the 7th or 8th Georgia and the 1st Texas. Toward the close of the day everything seemed to have quieted down in a sort of implied truce. There was absolutely no firing, either of musketry or cannon. Our weary, hungry infantry stacked arms, and were cooking their mean and meager little rations. Someone rose up, and looking over the works, it was shading down a little toward the dark, cried out, Hello, what's this? Why, here come our men on a run from, No, by heavens, it's the Yankees! And before anyone could realize the situation, or even start toward the stacked muskets, the Federal column broke over the little work between our troops and their arms, bayoneted or shot two or three who were asleep, and dashed upon the men crouched over their low fires, with cooking utensils instead of weapons in their hands. Of course they ran. What else could they do? The howitzers, only the left or Napoleon's section, was there, sprang to their guns, swinging them around to bear inside our lines, double-shotted them with canister, and fairly spouted it into the Federals, whose formation had been broken in the rush and the plunge over the works, and who seemed to be somewhat massed and huddled and hesitating, but only a few rods away. Quicker almost than I can tell it, our infantry supports, than whom there were not two better regiments in the army, had rallied and gotten to their arms, and then they opened out into a V-shape, and fairly tore the head of the Federal column to pieces. In an incredibly short time those who were able to do so turned to fly, and our infantry were following them over the entrenchments. But it is doubtful 
whether this would have been the result had it not been for the prompt and gallant action of the artillery. Take another instance, this time from my own command. Let the following tell the tale. Headquarters, Cavalry Corps, Army of Northern Virginia. April 14, 1864. Colonel, I have the honor to report the following affair, which occurred near Catlett's Station on the nth instant. Privates Richard Lewis and A. A. Marstella, both of Black Horse Cavalry, met with a party of four officers of the regular army, U.S. Army, a captain and three lieutenants. These two gallant scouts attacked the party, Lewis confronting the leading two, while Marstella presented his pistol at the two in the rear. One of these, Captain Samuel McKee of the 2nd U.S. Infantry, offered resistance but was eventually killed. Not, however, until he had fired twice at his assailant. The captain's comrade took advantage of this rencounter and escaped. Marstella, having dispatched McKee, reinforced Lewis, when the two remaining officers surrendered. They are First Lieutenants James Butler and Thomas Burns, of the 2nd U.S. Infantry evidently veterans promoted for meritorious conduct from the ranks. They have been brought safely to my headquarters. This all took place within a short distance of the camp of a portion of the 5th Federal Corps. The commanding general's attention is respectfully invited to these instances of the exhibition of extraordinary bravery and individual prowess. The officers were all armed and mounted, were veterans of the regular army. One says twenty years in the service. Would it be improper to send this report to His Excellency the President? Most respectfully, your obedient servant, J. E. B. Stewart, Major General. To Colonel W. H. Taylor, A. A. General, Endorsement Number 1, Headquarters, Army Northern Virginia, April 15, 1864. Respectfully forwarded for the information of the Department in connection with this report on the same subject transmitted yesterday, R. E. Lee, General, Endorsement Number 2. April 28, 1864, respectfully submitted to the President in compliance with the suggestion of General Stewart, as a bold deed it may instruct and please J. A. Seddon, Secretary of War, may instruct and please, as if the war was conducted for that purpose. Both of these scouts were educated gentlemen, well qualified to command a regiment, yet they remained privates in the ranks. What an army could have been made, had valor and skill been the sole prerequisite to promotion. The efficiency of the Army of Northern Virginia would have been greatly increased. But Mr. Davis opposed such proceedings, and the privates made no protest. When we are an established nation, I have heard hundreds say, and have said the same myself, then I will join the regular army and claim that rank which rightfully belongs to me. End of chapter 23